We're in Luke chapter 10 today, and loving to live part one. We're going to do a two-part series on the most famous parable in the entire Bible, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, a really, really cool passage. So before we get there, of course, I typically do this each week, and we'll do this until it gets stale. And when it gets stale, you guys got to let me know. I don't want to keep doing these if they're not. Joan, you especially. We love you because you're, you're honest about these things. <laughs> so tell us. These ones, I have a top 10 today, okay? My question leading into the top 10 is, did you ever struggle to show kindness to somebody? For whatever reason, did you ever struggle to show kindness to somebody? I'm going to give you my top 10 ways to show kindness to strangers in the year 2021, okay? And I, I tell you, these are a little bit silly. I'm going to do these kind of Letterman style today. I'm going to put them right on the screen for us, okay? And if you don't laugh, I'll get it, and I'll move on very quickly, and we won't do that again. But uh, let's work through these a little bit. And you ever have one of those nights where you're a little slap happy, and you get in a weird mood, and things are funny, and then you wake up the next morning, and they're not as funny? That's kind of what we're looking forward to here today. I'm going to try to click these, Luke. So top 10 ways to show kindness to strangers in 2021. Number 10, instead of road raging the person that cuts you off on the road, say a prayer that the three seconds they just saved will be the most profound seconds of their life. Anyone ever get cut off on the road and then you catch up to that person at the light and they're right in front of you? And you're like, hmm, what was that about? So there's, there's a way to show kindness to strangers instead of road raging them. How about number nine? Hold the door for the person walking behind you in the store, and if they say thank you, follow them around the store, assisting them with every single thing they do. Is that a good idea, anybody? <laughs> that would be kind, but also weird. Uh, here's number eight. If somebody drops a dollar out of their wallet, pick it up and hand it to them and say, the buck stops here. And if they laugh, you've made a new friend, because who would laugh at that? Except someone who really likes you. Here's number seven. If you... <laughs> This is very COVID-related. If you feel a cough coming on, take off the mask of a nearby mask wearer and then delicately cough into their mask and hand it back to them and make sure not to quarantine your smile as you do so. Yeah, moving on. That didn't land, did it? I told you it was funny at night, though. I was cracking myself up. Here's number six. If you notice a person behind you in the grocery store, checkout lane with only a few groceries. Let them go before you. And as they pull their cart ahead of yours, Compliment every grocery item they selected. They may feel weird then, but they'll feel special later on that day. Here's number five. If you have to wait a long time to get your food at a restaurant, demand to speak to the manager. And when the manager comes by, tell them that you're fed up with their service and wink while you say it. And if they don't understand, keep winking until they smile, because eventually they'll smile out of awkwardness. Number four, if you hear someone... <laughs> If you hear somebody burp in public, take the blame for the burp and then tell that person to pay it forward. I told you these were silly. I warned you guys. I got in a weird mood. Here's number three, showing kindness to strangers. If somebody calls you a stupid person, tell them they're biologically correct, but you actually identify as a smart person. Right? We're all about identifying today as different people than we are. Number two, if you see an old lady trying to cross the road, take her hand and walk with her across the road. When you get to the other side, tell her that you're blind and she just did you a huge favor. There we go. That's the funny one. I told you there was going to be one. She did you a huge favor. Number one way to show kindness to strangers in the year 2021 is invite your neighbors to Wyoming Valley Church by telling them that our tagline is a place where all are welcome and that you're pretty sure that even includes weirdos like them. Okay, we ended on a strong note. There we go. Today we're going to talk about sort of that kind of thing, kindness showing to strangers, as we look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you have your Bibles, join us in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And listen to this encounter Jesus has with a man and then the parable following that. He says in verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? 
Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he, saw, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went up to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, that he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Today we look at the most famous parable in the entire scriptures. This one even transcends Christianity into pop culture. I'm sure you've heard of the parable of the Good Samaritan, even watching movies and TV shows. And it's familiar for a good reason, because the message in this parable is a very powerful one. Now, parables were stories told by Jesus, typically hypothetical stories, stories that didn't necessarily happen. But they revealed a hidden meaning about the kingdom of God. And so our parable today is going to reveal that meaning as well. Before we look at the meaning of the parable today, I want to begin by looking at the encounter that Jesus has with the man that brings us to the parable. There's some important things to learn from this encounter that Jesus has with a man. In verse 25, a lawyer, an expert at the law. Now, we're not referring to the law of the land, okay, like a lawyer, you'd expect a lawyer in our culture. The lawyer he's referring to here in this passage is an expert at the law of God. Okay, this is a religious man. He's an expert at the Jewish law. And he stands up to put Jesus to the test. The lawyer stands up to put Jesus to the test. It says that right in the verse. Isn't it amazing when pseudo-experts try to undermine the real experts? Maybe you guys have heard the term armchair quarterback. Anyone ever heard that term? Sports fans, armchair quarterback. It's kind of like people like me who ridicule actual quarterbacks in the game going, wow, now what a lousy throw that was. You know, when in all reality, I can't make that throw. Um, that's kind of what happening here is happening here. In verse 25, the lawyer thinks he knows much more than the Son of God does. So much so that perhaps Jesus is not a match for his wits. The lawyer is not clearly seeking to learn anything from Jesus. He wants to test and trap Jesus and make him look foolish in front of everybody. He wants to undermine Jesus' ministry so that people will walk away from Jesus. Jesus will lose his influence. Why do these kinds of things happen? That's the first thing that struck me as I read this. Why do these kinds of things happen in our world? Why are the ones seeking to do the most good in this life and spreading the most love? Why are they often attacked as if they're the evil ones? What would make anyone attack Jesus and seek to bring him down? He was the author of good and love. Yet seemingly he couldn't go one day without someone trying to destroy his ministry. And this reveals a lot about our current world, how broken and backwards it is. Evil looks like good, and good looks like evil. And this is exactly why Jesus came to the earth. He came so that he might shepherd us a better way. But why? Why do people hate what is good? There was nothing offensive about Jesus Christ except the message that he told was good. And people hated him for it. But why? Why do people hate what is good? I thought of two reasons. Number one, quite simply, is evil masquerades as good. Maybe you guys have put on a costume for Halloween before and you go as a character. You're not actually that thing that you know, vampire you're dressing up as, but you're masquerading. That's what evil does in our culture. It masquerades as good while tearing down what is actually good. See, if evil looked like evil, most of us would line up against evil. We would. We would understand that evil should be defeated. But if evil looks like good, appears to be good, then we might actually line up against good and give our lives to hurting what is actually good. It happens all the time. Just ask the Apostle Paul or Pastor Todd 
what that is like because we know all too well what it's like to fight for the wrong team and not even realize it. I did it for years. It's a miserable experience once you realize what you've been doing. That's number one, why people hate what is good. Number two is people often fall right into the trap of the devil. Considering themselves to be warriors and patriots for the right cause when in actuality they're attacking the good team and attacking those who seek to help people. See, this is an age-old trap. It's an age-old trap, but it's a good one. It's an effective one. Satan twists the words and the actions of the Lord and those who follow him to make them seem evil. And then he sits back and he watches as people wage war against the good doers. So the devil today has thousands, if not millions, of warriors who don't even know they're on his team fighting for his cause. This is devastating. This is a devastating reality. And it happens because we do not stay close to the Lord and his word. That's how you fall into traps. You drift from the Lord. You drift from his word. And now you're easy pickings for the devil. So as an exhortation to all of us today, I want us to understand this today. The Lord does not want us taking this passage today here and applying it to random situations upon the world. Okay, He does not want... For an example, today does not want conservatives to use this passage today to say, see, this proves we're right. Liberals are doing this very thing. And he doesn't want liberals saying, see, the conservatives are evil and here is proof. That's not the point of the passage. This has nothing to do with politics. It has nothing to do regarding the world. I remember, parables are about the kingdom of God. Jesus is speaking about living for the kingdom of God while upon the earth. And we need to stay home that way and remember that. Because Jesus' entire life and message was about the kingdom of God. Everything he spoke about was about the kingdom of God. Because that's what's eternal. That's what's most important. So if you and I take this text today and we apply it to anything else, it's actually a trap of the devil that we can fall into. So we need to ask ourselves today, which team are we on? Which team are we on? Who are we we fighting for? Who are we fighting against? Are we on Jesus' team? Are we listening to the words that he actually declared in the scriptures? Or are we on a beaten path, a secret path, an evil path that does not line up with the plain teachings of scripture? I want us today to make sure we're on the right team. Okay? I want us to make sure we're on the right team. We're talking about a man who thought he was on the right team. And he wasn't. And I've been there. I told you. I've been there before. And I don't want to go back fighting for the wrong team. I want to stay on the good team where the Lord is. But I too have to watch out for the traps in order for that to happen. And this is how the devil works. He wants us to see something hidden. Hidden to most people. So we overlook the plain and obvious teachings of Jesus, such as the one we're going to learn today. Because Satan's logic follows this way. If it's hidden, then it must be treasure. And you must be so special to find that treasure because many others can't see it. It's an ingenious plan he plays to our pride. He makes us feel special to find something that is hidden, like a spiritual Easter egg hunt, so he can deter us away from what's most prominent, the plain, ancient, tried-and-true commandments of God. That's his plan, to substitute something less for something greater. See, Jesus' words were not typically hidden from anybody. Parables were the one exception where Jesus tucked away something inside the parable, away from the common man, so that those who only desired to follow him would find it. But most of Jesus' teachings are plain. They're low-hanging fruit. They're for everyone to see and to believe and to obey if they will see it with faith and if they will desire to follow him. The point before we get to our text is that the enemy is making evil look like good and good look like evil. He deters us away from the plain teachings of Jesus to get us to trade them for something the Lord does not desire for us. All detours, spiritual detours, are evil. Please understand that. Anything that departs and helps you leave this has evil intentions. All spiritual detours are evil. As an example, people today would rather get a degree from a university that validates that they're experts at the Bible instead of loving their neighbor through acts of sacrifice and kindness because that's what Jesus actually told us to do. 
the devil will trade us knowledge for obedience. And I'm thankful you brought that up, Teeth, because that was a good lead-in. And I'm going to tell you today, this is a temptation even for pastors, maybe especially for pastors, to be learned and educated and to be wise, but to forget the second greatest commandment of all time, to love our neighbor as ourselves. But let's understand this text together today, okay? The lawyer stands up to put Jesus to the test. Not to learn anything from him, not to gain anything from him, but to trap Jesus in hopes of bringing him down. Now, I don't know if you guys know or have heard the beginning part to the parable of the Good Samaritan. That part is often glossed over or not even mentioned. We go right to the parable. But isn't this a tragic beginning to the beautiful and famous passage that we're about to read today? And listen to the question that the lawyer has for Jesus. He says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Think about that question. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, even though the lawyer's motives are not pure, they're not. And he clearly does not believe who Jesus is because he calls him teacher. The question he has for Jesus is actually a tremendous question. If the lawyer's motives were pure that day, then he would have been in a perfect position to find treasure and wisdom from, from God that day. But he's not. He's trying to test Jesus. He's trying to trap Jesus. He's trying to ruin his ministry. But let's consider this question before we move on. Can anything be more important than that question there? Anything? Can anyone ask a more important question than that one? Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The man is inquiring about eternity. Eternity. Eternal life. This has nothing to do with 401ks or fitness upon the earth. It has everything to do with the next life that never ends. Never. And maybe we've become too numb to the idea of eternal life, but think about the concept of eternity. Too many of us today are concerned with this life only and not our eternal welfare. We seem to care more about making fun and memories, joyful experiences, being well-treated and spoken highly of, acquiring valuable stuff, saving our money for a future event, learning and knowing things about the world, enjoying pleasures and treasures of this life, fighting for the injustices against us, 401ks, vacations, holidays, birthdays, anniversaries, sports, movies, TV shows, music, dot, dot, dot. But what about eternity? What about eternity? How long do we plan to live here? Do we actually believe this life here upon the earth is eternal? Of course we don't. We know we're going to die. We know this life is going to pass. Then what about eternity? What about our eternal welfare? Why isn't our eternal welfare at the top of everything we do and everything we think about. Why? Why do we think more about this life that is 70 to 80 years on average versus eternal life? The life on the other side is literally forever, but somehow this life on earth gets the bulk 95 to 100% of our time, our hearts, and our minds. And we barely ever consider the next life. We must be insane, right? That has to be insane. That's an insane concept to think about because eternity is at stake here. And even the lawyer, even though his, evil, his intent is evil and he's trying to hurt Jesus' ministry, he is thinking about eternity. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's a very good question. That's a very redeemable thing we can find from the lawyer today. And if we all started with that question every morning, we would do well. Lord, Guide me the way to go so that I might live forever with you. I think that's an important thing to note before we move on. Let's go to verses 26 to 29. Because Jesus answers the lawyer. He doesn't leave him hanging. He doesn't dodge the question. He answers the lawyer's question with a question of his own. And it's a very interesting approach. Basically, since you're a lawyer and an expert at the law, then how do you read the law? Jesus strikes at this man's pride by basically telling him that he should already know the answer to his question. And if he does so, then he does not need Jesus to answer his question. 
Perhaps the answer to the lawyer's question is within his own mind, and discovering if that is true will reveal much about the man. So Jesus asks the lawyer, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the answer for what shall I do to inherit eternal life is within the Old Testament law. It is. The Old Testament law was established on two basic rules. Okay, Two basic rules that guided the entire thing. If you learn the two basic rules, you learned the entirety of the law. And these two basic rules weren't hidden from anybody. Anyone with a cursory understanding of the law would discover these two rules right away. So Jesus asks the lawyer, what is in the law and how do you read it? If you boil down the law to its most simple form, discover the answer for yourself. Tell me, Jesus says, how do you read it? And this is where we discover that the lawyer indeed knows the answer to his own question. And asking the lawyer to answer his own question versus Jesus giving him the answer is actually a very strategic move by Jesus. Because I believe Jesus knows the intent of the lawyer today. If Jesus gave him the answer, then perhaps the man might twist his words to say something evil that Jesus never intended him to say or to know. And he's seeking to trap Jesus. Or perhaps maybe Jesus would leave out something important and he could get him that way, by something by, by omission. But if the lawyer answers his own question, then the question, the answer, excuse me, cannot be manipulated. If the, if the lawyer answers the question, the answer cannot be manipulated. So the lawyer answers Jesus, and he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer knew the answer to the question himself. And Jesus revealed in that moment, he didn't come to Jesus to learn, but to trap him. Because he already knew the answer to the question. If he knew the answer already, then we discover that he asked the question with impure motives, not to learn the answer, but to see if Jesus knew the answer. See, the trap goes this way. If Jesus does not know the answer to the question, then clearly he cannot be the Messiah, he cannot be the Son of God, and his ministry is ruined. And if Jesus answers correctly, then the, law, the lawyer could trap him by twisting his words around to say something he didn't mean. Or, like I said, he could say, well, Jesus, you left out something, something really important. And therefore, Jesus, he believed, the lawyer believed, was trapped on either direction. But since Jesus is the Messiah and is the Son of God, he knows masterfully how to turn the question back around to the lawyer. He takes the lawyer's own trap and he sets it at his feet, revealing that Jesus knew is his intent and revealing that the lawyer and his plan was an exercise in futility. But, to his credit, the man knows the law. At least the summary of it, he answered correctly. That the law is summed up in two simple rules, two simple commandments. And he tells them straight away. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Two simple commandments describe the entire law of God. And since Jesus is true and honest and upright in all he does, he answers the lawyer's question honestly by saying this, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. There's the answer to your original question. Jesus says to the lawyer, you're right. You know the answer. Revealing once again, the lawyer did not need to ask Jesus the question because he clearly knew what was expected of all who desire to find eternal life. We must obey the Lord. Obey the Lord. But notice Jesus did not say, ha, I gotcha. Nice try. You should know better than to trap the Son of God. Jesus simply and lovingly states, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. This isn't about pride. This is about what is right. Even in combat, I want you to notice, even in combat, Jesus kills with kindness and love instead of rudeness and malice. And that's an immediate lesson for us to apply. He didn't come at the man with rage. He came at him with kindness and love, seeking to help him Go the right way. So the lawyer came to test and trap Jesus, but Jesus disarms him by revealing that the lawyer already knew the answer. So Jesus reiterated to the man that he should make sure to obey the law that he knows. 
Jesus does not throw egg on his face, but he also does not let, let the man undermine his ministry. Jesus used the piece of wisdom that he gave us in Scripture. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's wise as a serpent. He knows exactly what the lawyer is seeking to do. He's wise. And like a serpent, he's crafty. But he's also innocent, or the word can be translated to harmless. He's not seeking to hurt the man at all. He's seeking to help the man. And isn't that an interesting con contrast and complexity? Wise as a serpent, serpent and innocent as a dove. And this proves, once again, Jesus is clearly the Son of God. Who does that? Who has that complexity within them to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves at the same time? But our Lord did. Lesson over then, right? Lesson over. The moral of the story is don't test Jesus and obey the spirit of the law and you will live forever. Well, this is where our lesson deepens quite a bit because the lawyer is not going to let it go. See, Jesus just told him that he knew how to live forever. You know how to live forever, lawyer. But now the man is embarrassed because... Instead of Jesus being trapped, he was trapped. Jesus revealed to the lawyer that he knew the law and he knew what must be obeyed. And therefore, he can't claim on judgment day to not know the way to eternal life. So therefore, the lawyer is responsible for obeying the law that he clearly knows. And the trap that day snapped on the lawyer and not Jesus. The lawyer has to obey or die. See, but the lawyer doesn't like how this dialogue is going. This is not how it's supposed to go today. And now he feels that his conscience is against him because he must now do what the law has commanded that he do. Love the Lord and love his neighbor. So instead of walking away at this point, the lawyer decides to test Jesus with another question in an effort to save face and justify his own selfish, God-hating, others-hating lifestyle. And he asks Jesus' this question. And who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Did you notice the question at the beginning of this dialogue? I had a really good question when the man had his wits about him. But now that he's flabbergasted, his question is a poor one. He couldn't trap Jesus with his first premeditated question, and now he feels painted into a corner. So he decides to ask the first question that pops into his mind and hope that Jesus can't answer the question, and the lawyer can leave justified and feeling good about himself once again. But think about that question. Think about that question the lawyer just asked. And who is my neighbor? Really? Really? That's your plan B attack? And who is my neighbor? The law says I must love my neighbor, but I don't know who he is. This is an educated and smart man we're dealing with, but he can't seem to figure out what the word neighbor means. I've shared this story before, but it's kind of like the time that I was in seventh grade. And I tried to be friends with the cool kid in seventh grade. His name was Eric. And Eric came up to me one day and said, Todd, I think he was in my class, and I think he said, Todd, you know, what bands do you like? What bands are you into? And uh, I was kind of out of touch with the hip bands of the day back in seventh grade, so I didn't really know how to answer that question, so I decided to fake it. And I tried to say the name of a band that I had heard other people say, in hopes that Eric would just kind of high-five me and we'd be friends from that, point on, from that moment on. So I decided to say the name of a band that I heard, and I said, you know who I really like, Eric? I like the band Airsmith. I like the band Airsmith. And it kind of had a smug look like I got it. And Eric looked at me point blank, and he said, do you mean Aerosmith? And I said, yeah, yeah, Aerosmith. I was pretty sharp. I was like, I just rolled with it. I'm like, yeah, Aerosmith. That's what I said. That's what I meant. And I think Eric kind of knew that I was faking it. So he decided to ask me a follow-up question. He said, what's your favorite song by Aerosmith? And I was like, oh, no. And uh, again, I decided to fake it. I think he gave me a, a multiple-choice question that none of his choices were an Aerosmith song. And I guessed the wrong one. And he knew the jig was up. I didn't actually like Aerosmith. I didn't know any of their songs. I was found out that day to be a fraud. The lawyer asks Jesus, who's my neighbor? Now, I've asked this question to my children before. And my children get that answer very easily. You guys have answered that question without any difficulty at all. They have said this before. They've said, our neighbor is those who live near us. 
Great answer, isn't it? It could be a literal person next door or someone who just lives near you in life. My children apparently know more than the educated law expert. And again, the motives are not pure of the man. He knows the answer, but he's trying to slip out of the situation and feel good about himself again. Perhaps he should have asked, and who was my Lord? Because the Lord of all creation was standing directly in front of the man, and he didn't even recognize him. He clearly did not love Jesus, but instead was trying to undermine his ministry. So instead, he jumps to the question, and who is my neighbor? Hoping that Jesus won't know what to say, and the lawyer will be let off the hook. And this is where the parable of the Good Samaritan comes into play. This is how we arrive at the most famous parable in the entire Bible. But isn't the context interesting? Isn't that interesting leading up to that? We're about to learn how to love our neighbor, but the way we got here is quite an interesting path. The parable comes on the heels of Jesus being attacked and having to ask the question, answer the question, who was my neighbor? But since the man continues to ask Jesus, and since Jesus has his full attention, and perhaps the attention of many others listening in that day, he decides to educate the man on how to love his neighbor. Now, I told you, this is going to be a two-part sermon. We're going to dip our toes into the water today and save the rest for next week. Okay, but we're going to look now at verses 30 to 37 and listen to the parable again and glean a few things from this. Okay, so let's reread the parable. And remember the question. The lawyer's asking Jesus, who is my neighbor? And even though he's not seeking to learn from Jesus, you and I can. Okay, we can. So let's listen to the parable. He said, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went up and bound his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. This parable would have connected with the lawyer right away because everyone likes to play the victim, right? Everybody likes to play the victim. The lawyer is a Jew, and the victim in our story is a Jew. It's clear by where Jesus describes him coming from, Jerusalem, where he would have been to worship, and Jericho, where he probably lived. And I found a quote from John Wesley that said this about Jerusalem and Jericho, specifically Jericho. He said about 12,000 priests and Levites dwelt in Jericho. Wow, 12,000 all who attended the service of the temple. So this was a common pathway for Jewish religious leaders from Jericho to Jerusalem and back. So Jesus probably has the lawyer's attention here. The victim in our story is a Jew. The one who gets beat and robbed is a Jew. And the lawyer, too, is a Jew. This probably would have hooked the lawyer's attention to Jesus' story. But the story is quite a simple one. Let's just work through the details, okay? On the Jewish man's journey... He gets mugged and beaten by robbers. They beat him so severely that he's going to die if he doesn't get help soon. Two men, two people, come upon the man and they see him in his pitiful state. One is a priest, a Jewish religious leader, and the other is a Levite, a Jewish descendant from the tribe of Levi. These are two religious Jews walking by, noticing the robbed and beaten man, and they clearly see this man is in need of help. But what does the priest do? He passes by on the other side. I want you to picture if there was a sidewalk, he walked completely to the other side of the road, to the other sidewalk, and wanted nothing to do with the man and be as far away from him as possible. The Levite does the same thing. He notices him, and he walks around to the other side as if he was never there. And then a third man comes by, a Samaritan. And this is where we need to pause just for a moment and notice the relationship between Jews and Samaritans because they hated each other. Now, they were actually both religious sects of people, Jews and Samaritans, but they had these big differences in their religious understandings. 
maybe kind of like Catholics and Protestants today, that kind of would have separated them pretty sharply. Um, they both differed on where was the primary place to worship God. And that was a different opinion. And, and so these people did not like each other. They did not associate with each other. They were not friends with each other. The Samaritan is the most unlikely of the three people to stop and help the Jewish man, clearly. But he had compassion upon him. He stopped, he bandaged his wounds, and he took care of the man. And the next day he takes him to an inn, and he pays for all his expenses from his own pocketbook. And we find out that this is like Jesus. This is Christ-like, helping others in need. Others focused. I'll say that again. Others focused. There are two ways to look at this text, and we're going to do this next week, okay? Two ways to look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. Number one, the Good Samaritan is Jesus. The Good Samaritan represents our Lord Jesus. And although Jewish, in the line of David, Jesus was often treated from his Jewish brothers as if he was a Samaritan. They treated him like an outcast. They treated Jesus like a practical Samaritan, even though he was the king of the Jews. So Jesus is the real good Samaritan in the story. But we are also called to be the good Samaritan on this earth, to treat our neighbors with the same compassion and love that Jesus gave us, no matter who they are, no matter if we like that kind of person or not. The parable is about Jesus and those who follow him. And we're going to look at that next week at a different angle. But... Let's finish the story today, because the story finishes. After Jesus finishes the parable and tells the lawyer the parable, he directs another question to the parable. And we have to remember the lawyer's question at the beginning. He says, who is my neighbor? Okay, I have to love my neighbor as myself, but who is my neighbor? So Jesus says to the lawyer following the parable, a question for the lawyer once again. Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now, this is a very easy quiz. Anybody like easy quizzes? Yeah, you guys like when you get an easy test? They didn't happen a lot in school, but sometimes you got a really easy one. And Jesus says, you tell me, was it the Jewish priest who passed by on the other side? Was it the Jewish Levite who passed by on the other side? Or was it the Samaritan, the non-Jew, who had compassion upon the Jewish man and took care of him? Jesus is speaking to an expert at the Jewish law, and he's asking the man to use his understanding of the law to answer his question. Now recall the lawyer knew the way to eternal life was to follow the commandments of God. He knows the answer. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus says, which guy did that best? The lawyer's caught in a web here. There's no way to answer this question incorrectly because the answer is crystal clear, even in the mind of the lawyer. And any attempts to wiggle out of that would be very easily seen. So his attempts to justify himself have failed miserably. His attempts to trap Jesus have failed miserably. So he grasps there's no way out of this question, and he simply states to Jesus, the one who showed him mercy. See, the man didn't need knowledge on this day. He was full of knowledge. What he needed was a fresh perspective. See, he called Jesus teacher. Teacher. Is that offensive? No, it's not offensive, but it clearly proves that he didn't believe he was the Messiah and the Son of God. And although he knew the law so well that he could answer back to Jesus the answer to the question, what is the summary of the entire law, the lawyer was not thinking about his neighbor and how to love him. He was thinking about himself and how to make himself look good in front of others. And this is where we notice a sharp distinction in the path of Christianity and the path of the world. Christianity is others-focused, and the world is self-focused. That's a sharp distinction. After the lawyer again answers Jesus correctly by stating it was the one who showed him mercy, Jesus says to this in response to the lawyer, he says, you go and do likewise. Be like the one that you answered, the Samaritan. After all, his original question that he stated 
or started this whole dialogue with was how does one inherit eternal life? And Jesus reiterated, it's quite simple. It's faith in Jesus that works itself out in love. Now, there's so much to take from this passage, but we need to finish today and pick up on this next week. I want to leave us with three important truths today from the story, okay? The parable, we'll dissect that later. We'll dissect that next week. But simply from the encounter that Jesus has with a lawyer, I think there's three important truths to take home. Number one is quite clearly, we must believe who Jesus is. We must believe who Jesus is. This is paramount to eternal life. And although it's inferred in our passage, instead of bluntly stated, the lawyer does not believe in Jesus. He calls him teacher instead of Lord, Savior, Master, or God. And because he does not believe who Jesus is, he's going the wrong way. Although he seemingly had perfect light of understanding about the law of God, he's living in pure darkness. Because the way to eternal life begins and ends with believing who Jesus is. You don't get to eternal life without that step. Nobody does. We must believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lamb of God that was sent from heaven into the world to save his people from their sins. And if Jesus is anything less than that, we still live in darkness. And you and I cannot possibly navigate to heaven without the Lord of all creation. If the experts of the Jewish law can still not figure out how to show love and compassion to his neighbor on his own, then nobody has a chance to see properly without Jesus opening our eyes and saving us. If the experts can't even figure it out. Jesus is everything. He's everything. Do you believe in Jesus today? And I don't mean believe that he's an historical figure or that he was a good teacher. Do you believe he's the Messiah? Do you believe he's the Son of God? If you don't, you walk in darkness today and you're headed straight to hell. But if you do believe who Jesus is or you will believe who Jesus is, then he is your Lord according to your own testimony. And therefore, every word that comes out of Jesus' mouth is our law. And it's to obey. Guys, I used to be in this camp. I used to claim Jesus was my Lord for a long period of my life, but I didn't live like it. A long time. I said, Jesus is the Lord, but my life did not prove it. I mean, years and years of this. So therefore, I didn't believe. My life said, no, I don't believe. My speech said, yes, I do believe. They weren't in harmony. We must believe that Jesus is the Lord, the Savior, the only Savior of the world. That's number one. Number two is that pride and selfishness are the gateway to a stubborn, hard heart. The lawyer proved that. He uh, represents all proud and selfish people. When we're concerned primarily with ourselves and how we look and how we're treated, that we're almost impossible to teach truth to. We're almost impossible to reason with. You ever met someone like that? They're so concerned about how they're looking and how they're being treated, they can't even listen to reason. Selfishness closes our eyes to truth and to love. We don't want to see it. We only want to see what we want to see. This encounter with Jesus should have had the lawyer fall on his face before the Lord asking for mercy and salvation. And Jesus would have given it to him. That's exactly why he came, to save people just like the lawyer. But no, he wanted to test Jesus. He wanted to justify himself before others. And it proves that selfishness makes us stupid. Quite honestly, selfishness makes us stupid. Pride and selfishness are the theme of this world. Pride and selfishness is the theme of this nation, this state, this county, this city that you live in, and most of the homes who, who, of people who live in it. We have a whole bunch of people not looking out for the needs of their neighbors, but looking out primarily for the needs of their own flesh. Is it any, any wonder why the world is in the state that it's in? The world doesn't need more proud, selfish people. The world needs more others-focused Christians. 
Pride and selfishness break everything, while love blesses the entire world, including our own lives. Love will bless us as well. Do you remember what it says in Acts 20, 35? Do I have this on the screen? I don't have this on the screen. Listen to what it says in Acts 20, 35. It is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Do we believe that? Do we believe it's better to give than to get? Because God says you will if you understand what is right. When will we finally learn this age-old lesson? When will we get off the ride of pride and selfishness and get on the ride of love, sacrificial love, the same love that Jesus brought into the world? Pride and selfishness is the gateway to a hard heart. The lawyer had a hard heart. Number three, knowing what is right is never enough. We must obey what is right. See, besides not believing in Jesus, a lawyer knew all the right answers. I mean, notice the passage. He knows what is right. He knows what is true. But knowing is never enough. If knowing was enough, then the lawyer is a godly man based on his knowledge. But he was not a godly man because he was a sinner masquerading as a holy man. We love to gauge our faith based on our understanding of what is right instead of gauging it based on doing what is right. And the devil, he's masterful. He'll give you 90% of the pie, but he'll never yield the entire thing to you. He knows that knowledge that stops short of obedience is utterly useless. The lawyer was on his team, full of knowledge, full of right answers, full of the law, but fighting for the devil. In fact, knowledge without obedience is actually his best cloak of deception. When someone is unreligious and unlearned and unchristian in the ways of God, they typically know they're on a bad path. But those like myself growing up who are trained in religion and the doctrines of Christianity always believe they're going the right way, even if they're not doing what the scriptures tell them to do. And therefore, they walk to hell while they think they're on the path to heaven. It's so dangerous. And that's why I asked TGD to read James 1 that says, Hearing without doing is not faith. We must do what we hear and not just hear. If we learn anything from the lawyer today, let us learn that knowledge without obedience is dangerous. And it will condemn us unless we begin to practice what we are learning from God. So we can be vessels of usefulness to God, to others, and to the kingdom of God. See, the lawyer did not believe in Jesus. The lawyer was guided by his own proud heart and selfishness. The lawyer did not obey the very law that he knew. And ironically, Jesus came to save people just like the lawyer. The point was not to knock the lawyer down that day or to rub his nose in his sin. The point was to guide him and show him the proper way. I don't know the rest of the story for the lawyer, but unlike the lawyer, at least the way he's painted in our picture today, we need to be different, okay? Three things. We need to be different today. We need to, number one, humble ourselves to see Jesus with eyes of faith, not skepticism. If you will look at Jesus with eyes of faith, it will become obvious that he is the Son of God and the Messiah. Number two, we need to lay aside our own selfish agenda for the sake of helping others. Because that's the whole motto of Christianity. Christ and others, Christ and others, Christ and others. And number three, we need to learn from Jesus, our Master, our Teacher, our Lord, so we can obey him. Because obedience is the point. And this is part one. And the reason we did this is because I think there's a lot to learn just from the encounter of Jesus and the lawyer. Next week, we're going to look at part two of Loving to Live, and we're going to explore the, explore the parable from a different angle altogether. And next week is going to be powerful, and I invite you back to listen to that lesson as well. But please, I ask you to look inside of yourself today and see what is needed. I don't know what is needed. I searched that for my own heart. I don't know what is needed for your heart. Do you need to believe in Jesus today for the first time? Do you need to see Jesus with eyes of faith for the first time and say, he's the Lord, he's the Savior, and I clearly need to give my life to him? I remember when that day happened for me. It changed everything for my life, everything. Number two, do you need to lay aside pride and selfishness for the sake of 
It's helping somebody else. Getting your mind off of your own agenda and looking at those around you who are hurting. Because there's so many hurting people in this world. We could pass by on the other side or we can love them. And number three, do you need to begin practicing what God is teaching you so that you can bless God and your neighbor the way Jesus did for you when he died on the cross? Because remember, Jesus is the good Samaritan. Therefore, let us all love to live today by Jesus, for Jesus, and because of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for that lesson today. I hope it was impactful. It was in my heart and mind. And I pray for all those souls sitting here today, and even those online, Father, that you would touch their souls and help them understand what is needed today from this encounter with the lawyer and Jesus. And perhaps there's somebody here, Father, somebody listening who doesn't know Jesus, doesn't believe him, hasn't started their journey of following him. Father, I pray that you would touch their soul, awaken them to what is obvious and true, that Jesus is the Lord, he's the Messiah, He's the only Savior of the world, and that they would say, today I will give my life to Jesus. He's the Savior that I need. He's the Savior that created me. He's the Savior who loves me. Father, perhaps there's someone here who's stuck on their own agenda. They have their eyes set on themselves. They're looking at their own needs, their own flesh, and they're not concerned with their neighbor. Father, I pray that you touch that soul today. Remind us that there are hurting people and we are Christ's ambassadors here to help the hurting people, to show them what is right, to help them, to give them acts of kindness and compassion. And Father, Father perhaps there's someone here who is listening and have heard much in Christianity, in fact, continue to learn lessons, but they aren't putting them into practice. They aren't obeying what they've heard. They aren't obeying what they've learned. They're hearers only and not doers. Father, I pray for that soul that they'd begin to wake up and say, from this point on, I'm going to do what I've been taught. Thank you for this lesson today. Father, we give these souls over to you that you would encourage and pick up and dust off and set new life within if need be, Father. And we would all see Jesus better today and follow him greater. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.